This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 7th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week we've published several articles on antibody responses to both natural infection and vaccination. Before we get into the details of those studies, what do we know about antibodies and what do we learn from antibodies? Well, we know a fair amount about antibodies that are elicited by either infection or vaccines. And that's simply because they're very easy to measure. So they're the simplest way we have of measuring immune responses. The assays are fairly simple. They can be standardized, so they can be compared across labs, although quite honestly, that really hasn't happened for COVID-19 all that much. And most of the in vitro data we have on immune responses has come from antibody studies. And for many viral infections, antibodies are protective. So it's very plausible that they're an important part of immunity against SARS-CoV-2. But here's where it gets complicated. We know that both natural infection and vaccines induce some protection against COVID-19. And we know that both induce antibodies. And therefore, it's certainly possible that antibodies are what provides protection in both circumstances. But it may be more than that. For example, natural infection might induce protective antibodies, but vaccines do not, or vice versa, or there's some mixture of antibody and other mechanisms which altogether give you the kinds of protection that you're seeing. And we know that both natural infection and at least most of the vaccines induce T-cell-mediated immunity, which is also important in many viral infections. So we just don't know how each contributes to protection And what we care about ultimately is when we look at these in vitro studies, are we measuring protection? It gets even a little more complicated than that because there are many assays for antibody function. You can, for example, measure binding or you can measure neutralization of the virus in multiple ways. So we don't know which ones correlate with protections, if any of them do. And the Results of those assays vary among them. And when we look at different studies, they're often using different assays. So it's a little bit difficult to compare from study to study. Boy, Eric, you've framed a very large amount of immunology, host response, viral targets, and how do we decipher what protection is in your framing of the current state of affairs? I mean, I think that the Antibodies are attractive, as you mentioned, for a couple of reasons. As you said, they're easy to measure. You know, collecting samples, serum plasma is much easier to collect and store than PBMCs or cells, which are much more labor intensive. And then the assays to determine what the immune targets are, are easier to be done, as you imply, for the humoral side of the house than the cellular side. So there are some technical issues as to what's assessed. But there are also other differences in terms of targets, you know, and the issue of natural infection versus vaccine. With vaccines, as we all know, the spike protein is a important target because that has been identified as conserved, it's exposed, it's necessary for host cell engagement. But with natural infection, you have the whole virus. And therefore, there are multiple potential targets or immunogens rather than a selected one. 
and whether that selected immunogen, such as the spike, is the correct way to go about eliciting protection because it is something which is conserved across SARS-CoV-2 and therefore we can engage the immune response against a conserved target or relatively conserved because we all know that there's evolution in the spike protein to escape. But with natural infection, there's nuclear capsid, there are other potential targets. So it's a broader immune response. Whether that's good or bad is a complicated question because there is an issue of immunodominance and what is conserved enough to be protective through time. So there is a lot of biology woven into how we think about what we measure, what protection is, and differences between natural infection versus vaccine-elicited immune responses. So very interesting area, but many layers to dissect as we think about the benefits of vaccination and how we understand how best to exploit that technology. Now, that being said, it's also important to say that there's a very good chance that this is a bit simpler than we're making it out to be. It could very well be that high titers of antibodies do both correlate with protection and perhaps are the mechanism of protection. So it's not unreasonable to be measuring these things, not unreasonable at all. We just have to be careful when we interpret these. So given all of those caveats, what did we learn this week about First, the antibodies that are induced by natural infection. Steve, we've heard quite a bit about viral variants and how people who've been previously infected with older strains of the virus still seem to be susceptible to a second infection with a viral variant. And this is particularly true for B1351, the variant first reported from South Africa. But what about the reverse? If you're infected with B1351, are you susceptible to infection with other variants, with the older viruses? It's difficult to ask that question clinically because in places where B1351 is very common, like South Africa, it's essentially taken over the entire population of virus. So we're not really seeing any infections by those older strains. But you can ask about antibodies and whether or not the antibodies induced by infection with the various strains will bind to or neutralize the older strains and vice versa. So a group of South African scientists did just that. They looked at serum derived from patients infected with either the original strain or B1351 and tested their ability to neutralize the original virus and B1351 and another variant. They found that most sera from patients with the original virus could neutralize B1351, albeit much less well than the original virus. But the other way around was better. Sera from 53 out of 57 patients infected with B1351 could neutralize the original virus, and most could do it more strongly than the converse experiment. Thus, it seemed that B1351 can generate an antibody response with a broader specificity than the original virus did. I mean, it sort of makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. A new virus infects a new host. That community, that species is seronaive, and therefore there is widespread of the virus because it's easily transmitted and there is no background immunity. As background immunity emerges, 
the virus mutates and evolves to escape the immune selective pressure and a different set of viral clones emerge. And we've seen this as we watch the different genotypes take over in different communities where this is measured because there is evolution. Evolution either through immunologic selective pressure, evolution through viral selection where it is better able to bind the receptor, replicate, transmit, survive in the environment, different parameters that enable the virus to be more effective at spreading and to avoid the selective pressure that it's experiencing. So this makes sense. And the question is, at some point, will the virus hit an asymptote of optimizing its features to best infect humans? Or will this be a continued evolution because of immunologic selective pressure as new variants emerge? It's something that will be very interesting to define and understand as we develop further vaccines and understand how it's transmitted. The other piece that's interesting is once you have that initial wave of infection, you do get other types of immunity, as we discussed before, more than neutralizing antibody, the T cells, as well as to other epitopes. So it becomes more complicated as you have super infection with variants on top of background immunity from prior infection, all of which we'll have to tease apart scientifically. Lindsay, I wonder if we can draw a parallel to influenza. For influenza, we see new antigens being generated every year, slightly different antigens, but different enough so that immunity is imperfect from previous years. And yet, people who have been infected with flu or gotten flu vaccines in the past seem to have much better protection against new flu strains than people who never were infected or people who never received vaccine. So having similar viral infections or seeing similar antigens does offer a benefit, even if it's imperfect. And I wonder if we're seeing the same thing here. I completely agree. And that's why I want to be careful as you already suggested, Eric, earlier, that we don't bet the farm on neutralizing antibody and the in vitro assay associated with that measurement. That is one of many different immunologic functions, and the in vitro assay is imperfect to the in vivo state of immunity or protection. So another group of investigators looked at how well antibodies induced by vaccination would work against these variant viruses. What did they find? Steve, this was a group from Israel that studied a very small group of individuals, six healthcare workers who'd previously had COVID-19 and then received BNT162b2, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Now, what made these six individuals unusual is that they had serum from these people from shortly after their infection, and then they collected more serum from just prior to vaccination and one to two weeks after their first dose of vaccines. They performed neutralizing assays using the original viral strain and three variants, B1351, B117, which was the strain first identified in the UK, and P1, which was seen first in Brazil. In all cases, they saw modest responses with infection, which declined somewhat prior to receiving vaccine but the vaccine boosted antibodies far beyond that seen in natural infection. And although there were somewhat different magnitudes with different variants, all of them produced very high levels of neutralizing antibody. To some degree, this 
is what we classically see with priming and boosting. And what is the nature of priming? You know, for many of our vaccines, hepatitis B, HPV, human papillomavirus, we give the same antigen repeatedly to be able to elicit the immune response at a high enough level that we think is protective and protective through time. Here, one could imagine the priming was the wild type infection. And the vaccination now is the boosting, and it's the boosting targeting the spike antigen that has been selected as the target for protection. And one boosts, you know, very nicely after one is primed. So it fits biology, and the level of protection can only be seen in clinical studies. But these data are very suggestive that one can be primed with a wild type infection and then boosted with a vaccine. It does bring up the question that's been raised by a number of people. If you have been previously infected, if you have a documented infection, is one dose of vaccine enough? Because in this case, as has been seen in other cases, you get very high levels of antibody, at least after the first dose. And I think the answer is we don't know. But I think another important observation is that people who have been previously vaccinated and received the vaccine don't seem to have other issues. There aren't safety issues associated with that. So the downside of receiving a second vaccine isn't that great. And so I think that most people would strongly recommend a second dose of vaccine to get the most persistent effect. Although a single dose of vaccine does seem to be pretty good in these folks. Finally, We've published a report on the persistence of antibody responses after vaccination with the other mRNA vaccine, mRNA-1273, the vaccine produced by Moderna. How do antibody levels look late after infection with that vaccine? The report we have is from a group that looked at recipients of the vaccine during the phase one trial, so a long time ago. This was long enough ago so that these 33 individuals could be studied six months after completing the two doses of vaccine. The investigators used three different assays to look at antibody levels and their function. And while there was some decline over time, in general, antibodies levels remained reasonably high. Of course, I'll go right back to the beginning and reiterate the concern that we don't know what these numbers mean. But overall, they're pretty reassuring. It's important to keep in mind that infection would also likely induce a rapid burst of antibody production similar to that scene in the study we just discussed where infection was followed by vaccination. Thus, it's not clear that high antibody levels are necessary for protection. The ability to rapidly produce antibodies in response to infection might be equally or even more important for protection. I think these data remind us that SARS-CoV-2 has been in the human population for 15 months. Therefore, durability of the immune response beyond that cannot be known with wild type infection. And obviously we have less durable data for vaccine elicited immune responses. But what these data do show us is as we follow the vanguard of individuals who are vaccinated earliest, and this has been seen both with the BNT162B2 as well as the mRNA1273, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that as we continue to monitor the vanguard of individuals, the immune responses persist. And I think that's encouraging that the biology fits what we would expect, 
but we can now see that through measured response versus what we would intuit. Of course, what we'll need to learn is do these responses need to be boosted because we want them higher? Do they need to be boosted because we want to broaden the immune response against variants? Many more questions will emerge. But as we monitor the vanguard of individuals, it is reassuring to see data that makes sense, that we would expect, and that fits with what we think is longer-term protection. I also think it's important to recognize how far we've come in our understanding. And that's been aided tremendously by the success of vaccination. It's important to remember that when we started all of this, we didn't know that it was possible to get a protective immune response against these sorts of viruses. We just didn't have any examples of that. We do have the distantly related alpha coronaviruses, which cause essentially common colds. And it's been very difficult to elicit lasting immunity to these sorts of viruses. And so there was a strain of thought that said, we'll never be able to make a vaccine. We're so far beyond that now. What it looks like is that immunity works. It works both from natural infection and from vaccines. That our vaccines actually induce a better immune response and a more robust immune response and more protective immune response than natural infection does, which is not always the case. And information like this suggests that the immune responses are going to persist in a way that we'd expect these two. As Lindsay just pointed out, this is exactly as expected for this kind of immune response. And so what that likely means, and now I'm going to speculate a little, is that immunity is pretty good. It's not going to require constant boosting to get it because that's not what we do for other infections. We boost rarely in adults for other infections. And that if it weren't for the fact that there is variation going on among the viruses, we are doing pretty well. Now, of course, it's possible we might have to boost in order to produce adequate immune responses to viral variants that might emerge. But this is now fitting into a more normal paradigm of vaccine development. I think what this means is that the lessons we've learned from other infections really do apply to this infection and that we probably are going to be able to generalize quite a bit from those lessons. And I just want to reinforce one of your comments earlier, Eric. We don't know that the antibody or the neutralizing antibody response is the correlate of protection or the mechanism of protection. By priming the immune system and having broad-based primed immune response, that may be adequate to prevent severe illness when re-challenged with wild-type virus and even evolving and mutating wild-type virus. We don't know, but it is very encouraging that vaccines are able to elicit protection that is measurable and meaningful. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.